0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore is an American psychotherapist, a former monk, and the New York Times best-selling author of Care of the Soul. After studying at a prep seminary for 13 years, he left just before his ordination as a priest and went on to obtain a Ph.D. in religious studies from Syracuse University, as well as degrees in music composition and theology. With Sounds True, Tom has published several audio learning programs and online courses, and most recently, the audio series, A Personal Spirituality, Finding Your Own Way to a Meaningful Life. Today, Tom and I spoke about staying faithful to one's own conscience and inner promptings, even when that makes you less popular with the culture as a whole and can even appear to betray one's religious tradition. We talked about our secular culture and how there is a current distrust of the mysterious and unknowable, and how the ability to connect with the mysteries of the universe without having to explain them is actually a prerequisite for developing a spirituality of one's own. Finally, we talked about personal spirituality and how one can take practices from different traditions and yet still experience the real demands of the spiritual life outside of being a member of any one faith tradition. Here's my far-reaching and provocative conversation with Thomas Moore. Tom, the subtitle of the new audio series that you've created with Sounds True is Finding Your Own Way to a Meaningful Life. And I wanted to start our conversation, just diving right in to the deep end, I believe, by talking about meaning, and particularly talking to people who, at the moment, might have the experience of meaninglessness and really just trying to get in there. And here's what I mean by the question. Someone might say, yeah, I have pleasure in my life. Yeah, I do good work. I care about my family. But meaning, you know, I don't ascribe any particular meaning to my life. It's meaningless. It is. I mean, this is just a human invention, meaning. So I wonder how you understand meaning.
1: Well, I've often wondered myself about that word because it seems like the wrong word in some ways, because what what could be the meaning of your life? Are you supposed to take your life and reduce it to a few sentences that sound like you understand what's going on with you? That kind of meaning doesn't make any sense to me. But I think when you talk about meaningful, it's slightly different. Um, when people live a meaningful life, I think it means that they, that they uh, feel that there's value and that Uh, There's some sense about what they're doing. It's not random. And they may not be able to explicitly say what the meaning is, but they can feel that it's a meaningful life. And you may have periods, anyone might have periods in life where that sense of meaningful has gone away. Uh, I think a lot of people feel that when they're in the wrong job. They feel that this doesn't have any meaning for me. I think someone may use the word there. And, And that's pretty clear then that... The meaning means I'm doing something that makes sense to me, that gives me the feeling that what I'm doing is worth doing. So it's more a value word, I think, than an intellectual one.
0: You know, you're so good at parsing words and getting very specific. So part of what I hear you saying is meaningful is a way we can experience our lives. It it doesn't necessarily mean they have any existential meaning that's some sort of lasting thing, but that we have this feeling inside that what we're doing is worthwhile in some way.
1: Absolutely. Yes, I think that's that's right. And that, that's what I was trying to say, not not too clearly, trying to say that when, if you think of meaning as something you can clearly articulate, I, I don't know if anyone can ever reach that point. But you can certainly have a moment when you—it's feel, more feeling, I think—it's more of a sense that life now makes sense, and that I can see why I'm doing what I'm doing. Or there may be another period of life where you say, "Well, I can't see why I should continue. Why should I be living the way I am right now?" But I'd like to say something about that. That's a little little off track, and that is that in the scope of things, over a whole lifetime. I think we have to be in uh, in those times and places where there is no meaning and there's no, where you don't feel it's meaningful to you. Uh, that's just part of the rhythm of life. And so I, I would not say that because someone is feeling that their life is meaningless at the moment, they should rush into meaning. They uh-huh. need to stay with that meaninglessness for a while.
0: I'm wondering if you would be willing to share... From your own life, a period that you found a sense of meaninglessness, and what came from that
1: well the most the most meaningless moments in my life <laughs> that I can remember are when i I left the the religious community I was in this is when I was really young, like I was and you know twenty five or so twenty six and I needed to to make a living. I needed to do something so I could survive. I didn't have any source of income when I was in college. So I got a job uh, rolling coins. That is, I was at this place where they bring in money from businesses and, and keep it and sort it. And I had to sit there with little paper wrappers at a machine and throw coins into the machine. And as they came out, I had to put them into wrappers. That was the most meaningless moment of my life that I can remember. And it's interesting to me that it has to do with work because uh, work and meaning and the sense of meaningful go, go together. It's not the only place you find meaning, but I think it's one of the most important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that in your description of life being meaningful that you've referred to work a couple of different times. So let's say somebody is in a job that they don't experience as particularly meaningful. I think many people have that experience. What might your suggestions be to that person?
1: Well, the first thing to do in that kind of a situation always, I think, is to articulate where you are. You don't want to reach too quickly into some idealized place where you imagine everything could be so much better. Because in a funny way, the more you idealize, alternatives the more you stay stuck in that place you really have to be there and feel it and talk about it it's very important to articulate it so if you can talk about it to friends and family people that you can really talk to or talking to a therapist that's another way to do it too but i don't think that's essential but you do have to baby articulate where you are so that you don't rush out and go into an opposite position what happens to a lot of people when they feel they're in a meaningless situation is that they rush into something that they've idealized and they haven't really sorted it out very much and sorted out what's going on with them. And that new place turns out to be bad after a few months or years.
0: Hmm. Now, Tom, I think part of the reason I wanted to start with this whole discussion of what it means to live a meaningful life in relationship to this question of personal spirituality. What is my spirituality? Is I think that in the face of death, our own death, the death of people we love, I mean, that can be one of the times when people ask themselves, what's going on? This all seems so meaningless. You know, these people I care about, they've died, my life doesn't have the same kind of orientation or reference point, this is my time to turn to spirituality to help me find meaning of some kind, and it may or may not work for them. So I wonder if you can talk about meaning in that context, in terms of living with mortality.
1: Yes, I think that it's one of those um, moments in life when you become aware of mortality and death and Especially when you experience it around you, if someone close to you dies. Uh, uh, that may throw you into a state of shock for a while, and you may wonder, what is it all about? This person is living, and, and their life made so much sense, and suddenly it's not there. What is, the, what is that emptiness? Where's that? What is that gap all about? And what does it mean for me in my life? Those are really tough questions. But those are the questions that I think force us to think in a broader way. One of the great troubles we have living in this world today, I think, is that uh, we don't live in a spiritual realm. Uh, There are a lot of spiritual people in this world, but our culture as such doesn't have institutions and traditions that um, acknowledge and help with the spiritual realm and that, that area of meaning. So we have institutions like medicine that uh, even today are entirely dedicated to life. Uh, I have worked, I have done a lot of work in medicine. and I've met so many people working in medicine who haven't sorted out this issue of death. Even oncologists, people working with people with cancer, um, have told me that they, they don't know what to do about death. They, they They just pretty much avoid it. And they feel that emptiness from avoiding something. So, but that's what I'm saying, that the institution like medicine is dedicated to to living and prolonging life as much as it possibly can, but it doesn't really help us with dying and with death. So many medical professionals I know would be the worst people to help you deal with your dying. Now, hospice has come in and has been a wonderful, I mean, incredible organization or tradition or a movement, whatever you want to call that, that has helped so much, and you ask people working in hospitals uh, what, what, uh, what good thing has happened for human beings in the past 50 years. I think many would say hospice. So what hospice does is bring uh, a less physical, more spiritual, but very down-to-earth usually um, approach to dying. And this fits into my recent work, A Religion of One's Own or the spirit, Your Own Spirituality. Um, because um, hospice is really not representative of any belief system or religious tradition, and yet it is a highly organized spiritual uh, entity, or uh, as I say, like a movement. And I think what we need throughout our culture is in everything. I can imagine business. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but I could imagine that business could expand its sense of what it is and what it does so that it too could um, offer something for employees and for people who own these companies and even for customers that would contribute to their spiritual life and in that way help with this issue of mortality and meaning. I mean, we're dealing with mortality every day, whether we know it or not, one form or another, so it's something we have to deal with every single day. And sometimes it's rather indirect. So going to work is probably, has a lot to do with being alive. But you know that the end of that job is coming someday, and you think about it, and you need some help. Not just retirement planning, but uh, the whole life cycle and a sense of what life is all about, bringing in the spiritual issues. I think that's what we lack.
0: mm Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that's very well said, and you're underscoring the meaning crisis, if you will, which I think there is that we're in as a collective, is because spirituality is not woven into our culture. And I wonder if you can talk more about what that weaving in of spirituality in the culture would look like to you.
1: This is what I've been looking at and trying to do all my my whole career, really, from the beginning. Even when I was living in a monastery, when I was in my 20s, I was very interested in any kind of spirituality that was in the world rather than outside it. Uh, For example, I was very interested in Thayer de Chardin, a Catholic uh, scientist and uh, priest. And uh, his philosophy, his spirituality, was in the world. Uh, He developed the whole theory of evolution and how we, as we evolve physically, we're also evolving spiritually. That really appealed to me. And then I went on in my career to find other ways to make spirituality something very grounded and part of the world. Um, And I I just get more and more um, involved and engaged in trying to imagine ways of doing that. So what I have to do, what I've done is look at different aspects of culture. So I've, done, I've written a book on work, and I've written about sex, and I've, uh, I've written about medicine, and uh, I've given uh, talks and workshops on business so and on money. So what I'm trying to do is piece by piece, uh, see if we can look at this life that has been secularized and see what it would look like if we brought more spirituality into it. I don't mean imposing some religious tradition onto it. I don't mean being terribly explicit about the spiritual, but to recognize that our lives are are partly spiritual and that we can bring that spirituality to bear in these so-called secular aspects of life. Another one I didn't mention is education. That's another area where it seems to me we could uh, educate people at the level of uh, soul and spirit so that um, instead of just information and instead of just trying to train people for a job we've we've done all this work we work so hard to educate people but we don't really educate them we don't really educate them as people and I think that's one of the reasons why we we don't have the spiritual awareness in our everyday lives
0: now, you're using this word spirituality and bringing spiritual awareness into education. Tell me exactly what you mean by that, Tom, because I think some people hear that word and they just go fuzzy. They don't quite know what know. it means.
1: Well, it is kind of a fuzzy word. Um, I don't like to use it too much, but sometimes you have to. And I have a whole background in spiritual life, and I, you know, it, it's just natural for me to talk about it. But what I mean is that there are there are aspects of our lives that transcend what we can measure and what we can see and what we can control. I don't, I'm not talking about another world to believe in. I don't mean anything like that, something supernatural. But there are um, parts of life. For example, uh, something like marriage. Uh, when people get married, um in a secular purely secular world you look at that and you say well here are two people who have chosen and decided to live together and have maybe have a family maybe not and they they come together and um they have a social unit and uh that's it you know we see them we see them coming together we see legal aspects of it and the social aspects of it but on the other hand, if you talk to people about their relationships, uh, they are so meaningful that they reach so far deep inside them, and they're full of mystery. What I like to do when I gather people together talking about this, if I have a group with me, I'll ask them to talk about these couples, I'll ask them to talk about how they met. And as they tell their stories, I can be sure that they're going to tell very mysterious stories about how they met how unusual it was that things just came to be that were uh, very hard to explain. It was almost like magic that they ever finally worked it out. I could say the same about my marriage. It's the same issue, full of mystery and magic. That takes us out of the realm of the practical and the sociological and even the psychological to an area of mystery and wonder. And we begin to wonder then, well, what is it then? How do people come together why these two people, and could it be that only these two people could be together and share a life together? Uh, what is all all about? And when it comes to to uh, breaking up a relationship or a marriage, um, why is it so difficult, and why do people still feel together? Or they never quite make the break, or they dream about their partners, their ex partners, for a long time. These are all very mysterious aspects of something that could be considered purely secular. That's what I mean by the spiritual. You get into the mysterious and those things that can't be explained and yet are felt very sharply and deeply in ordinary life.
0: You know, I have a a great appreciation and my heart lights up when I hear you talk about the spiritual. I mean, that's what Sounds True has been based on for 30-plus years. What's interesting to me is that I've been getting phone calls over the last few years from different businesses that are starting up trying to bring quote-unquote mindfulness and compassion both into healthcare and into business and into schools. And the first thing people say to me is, we want to access the secular part of your catalog, and we're particularly interested in things that are evidence-based. This is the kind of phone call I get. And, you know, part of me wants to hang up at that moment and just like just hang up the phone and end the conversation. But, of course, the other part of me sees there's this new opportunity to bring really important teaching work into different kinds of institutions. So why, what is it in our culture right now where, yes, people are interested in mindfulness and compassion, but they want it secular and they want it evidence-based? You're describing something that's mysterious.
1: That's right. Yes, well, this has been going on for a very, very long time, maybe for hundreds of years. That is, that the secular world has been sort of eating away at the spiritual and uh, <clears throat> incorporating it into its own value system, essentially making religion secular. And I think this has happened to so many of our religious institutions. They are no longer uh, representatives of the mysterious and the awesome and the wondrous—they are their they're, they're businesses and their organizations—and they have a creed that can be spelled out, and and uh, and the mystery has gone out of it, and and even ethics, how to live, has been turned into a list of things to do and don't do. So I, I would resist. Uh, any attempt, and I do this daily myself, I don't participate when people say, when when I get a whiff of this, of this idea that they're going to take the spiritual and absorb it into the, I don't know what to call this, this mechanical philosophy of our time, like evidence-based uh, medicine and that kind of thing. Um, I fight it, and I argue against it uh, all along, because I think that it's a subtle, it's a very subtle way of getting rid of what is the very core of the spiritual. And so, and I know I meet people every day to myself, and I, I deal with this issue all the time, people who, who think it's so wonderful to give a scientific base to spiritual practices. I don't. I, I'm, my, my work is just the opposite. I want to bring a spiritual dimension to all that evidence-based work and all that secularist, um, mechanical activity that's going on. I don't want to. I don't want to reverse it. So I. I would not participate.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, this is a quote from your book, "A Religion of One's Own." The first prerequisite for a spirituality of one's own is the ability to be connected to the mysteries without having to explain them. Right.
1: That's right. So we have a. We have what would you call it i guess a certain madness uh, a neurosis cultural neurosis of having to explain everything but it's very difficult for the modern person to face something and maybe even uh, enjoy it without explaining explaining how it works i'll give you an example in my work as a psychotherapist i do a lot of dream work i mean for some people it's like a hundred percent dream work and then once in a while people will say well tell me what are dreams and and where they come from and and how do they relate to the brain and all of that. And I say, I don't know. I can work better with them by not knowing and wasting my time trying to explain it. There are other people maybe who are are born differently than I was who love to explain things, and I'll let them do that work. But I really want to speak for the spiritual. I want to represent the spiritual, both spirit and soul, uh, in my work. And uh, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not very open, I'm afraid. I'm kind of closed to this idea of, of uh, either certainly proving spiritual matters with scientific uh, study and experiment. I don't want to do that. I don't want anyone to wire me up as I'm meditating. I would never agree to that. Because I think that is, that is a subtle way of losing our spirituality.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I'm going to play the opposite side here just for a moment with you, sure. Tom, I can't help myself, which is I'm
1: used to it. Go ahead.
0: what has occurred from these different meditators being wired up is that there's now more of an acceptance in the culture at large for the practice of meditation. And that seems like a very good thing.
1: No, I don't think so. Um, because what it does is uh, people then are drawn to meditation for the wrong reasons, and meditation itself then becomes a sort of self-improvement exercise, rather than connecting to that mysterious that is always just out of reach of ourselves. No, I don't. I don't think that really helps at all. It makes the modern the modern in us more comfortable. Then we don't have to reach out. I think it's very important to reach away from our modernism. Now, one way to do that is to go to a culture that's not quite so modern today. Or another way to do it would be to go back into the past, which was not so modern, and uh, find some wisdom and some, some uh, ways of looking at life and at the world and at oneself that are different from this modern way. That's what I've done. That's why I often say to people that I, I'm really not a person of my own time. Um, I live outside of time, I, and I always say this too. I, I, I have no interest in being in the present and the here and now. All that, all that talk about the present <laughs> doesn't doesn't appeal to me at all. I always want to be outside of it, away from it. And, uh, I mean, sure, there's a way to be present that's very practical and useful. But no, I, I'd rather have my fantasy be rich, enriched by the past than to uh, be in the present moment.
0: But I I do need to say something here about the present moment, Tom, just because, you know, you and I know each other, and I've, you know, spent time with you relatively recently, and I experience you as very present with me right there, very warm, you're listening very carefully. You may be in some other time zone inside and having all kinds of fantasies that I know nothing about, and that's your business, and that's fine. But I experience you as a very present person, so that's interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, see, I would say that if you can live in a, in a very broad range of time, then you're able to be present. If you are trying hard to be in the present, you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. That that's that's the point. Now uh, the example I like to give is uh, Carl Jung, who I he has. I, I'm not really big on his system of psychology, but I really love how he models life. And one of the things he did in his life was build. He built this tower to live in. He calls it a tower, but it's like a big house in a way, a big building. He he lived in this tower, and he didn't have. Electricity or, or running water in it, and it was built by a lake. And he says that he wanted to be there to emphasize the timeless timelessness of his life, or to ex- extend the boundaries of his life. I feel very much like that. I I like that model for me because I think our our task should be to extend the time frame in which we live, rather than to compress it into a moment. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. But as I said before, as I said to you, I think that actually there's a paradox at work. So the more you expand your sense of time, the more you can be present.
0: Yeah, I just want to circle around and connect something that I think's been implicit in our conversation so far. But I'd love to hear you address it explicitly, which is the connection between touching the mysterious and being in contact with what, quote unquote, the spiritual dimension of life without having to understand it, and this question of meaningfulness and finding our lives meaningful. What do you see as the connection there?
1: Well, this is really difficult to express, but I think it's it's at the center of everything, as you said. Um, uh, it's, it's paradoxical that to be a real human being, to really feel your full humanity, what you're capable of, to really have uh, to, to really enjoy life and to be able to love people and to have friendships, these things are so important to life. In order to do that, paradoxically, I think you have to be open to the to, 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 to the unknown, to what we can't know and what uh, I hate to keep using that word, but is mysterious. Uh, I like to think of this idea of the of uh, spiritual practices as bringing us to a place where the world sort of cracks open. Um, I just uh, uh, finished translating the the Gospels, and there's this image I love to write about in the Gospels where Jesus is being baptized, and as he's standing in the water, the sky opens, and a voice comes out uh, proving of what he is and what he's doing. That opening of the sky, that cracking of of the dome under which we live, to me is what is what we're aiming for in, our, in spirituality. We're not trying to find out know what is beyond that crack, but to get to the crack, to live there where we have the unknown and the mysterious and the hugeness of life uh, as part of our experience and our identity. I think that's what's important, and that humanizes us. It makes us more human. Because otherwise, we're stuck in a sort of machine world where everything seems to make sense mechanically. Or we're in a, a world of money where the only thing that really makes sense is making more money. And, and uh, these values of money and uh, the, the mechanics of living are not enough to really make us feel human. So we need that, we need that opening. I often think of the Pantheon in Rome where you walk into this temple, and there's this hole in the ceiling. I remember the first day I went there, it was raining, and standing there in the middle of this temple with the rain coming down on me because there's a hole in the very top of the ceiling, a circle. Um, It was such a transforming moment for me because I realized that this is really what the spiritual life is about. It's standing there in the world, fully in the world, in that great city like Rome. And there in this building, which is supposed to represent really the whole of life, there's a hole in the ceiling and rain is coming down. You're being affected by the radiance of that opening in the ceiling. So that's an image for me of the spiritual.
0: I love that. Thank you. Tom, I want to talk to you about this idea of a personal spirituality or a religion of one's own, as you've referred to it. You know, I think many people, when they hear about something like, you know, you're going to find your own way. You're going to take a little bit from this tradition, a little bit from that tradition, and throw in some chanting and some qigong, and, you know, play on an African drum before you go to bed. The response, and you You recognize this, you know, in in your book, A Religion of one's own. you say how people call this cafeteria spirituality or smorgasbord. I'm going to go to the buffet and take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you make a really interesting comment that I've never heard anybody say before, which is you say, I like buffets. And when you said that, I thought, that's so great. I actually like buffets, too. Why does everybody say such terrible things about buffets?
1: Well, yes, I, that's right. And I mean it also in terms of the metaphor that uh, a buffet approach to life is can be really wonderful. It's not the whole thing. You can do other things too, but um, I probably eat at a cafeteria or a buffet maybe you know, once every th- two or three months. It's rare. I like going to hotels where they have usually breakfast set out. That's the time I usually see it, and I really enjoy that, walking up to a buffet and, and seeing all the possibilities, it's just a delight. It, to me, it's a great pleasure being in a in a, in a nice hotel. So um, that metaphor works for me. Uh, I understand the complaint um, that people think that if you just take a little bit of that, as you were describing it, um, and make sure you get everything included, that that is not really a good, very good buffet. <laughs> that would be going to a place that doesn't have much at their buffet or that you you really can't have much substance. Um I think that uh, I know for myself that I have uh I have had a a good sampling of many spiritual traditions. I mean I spent what 13 years in a religious community from the time I was 13 from 13 to 26. Now that was a sample, that was a buffet, part of my buffet. And that's pretty good. I didn't stay with it. You know, I left it after those years and then i spent maybe well since then uh, i've been exploring zen buddhism very intensely and uh in a way that really affected me very very deeply it affects everything i do for all these years since then i studied greek polytheism which i consider a, a spirituality and not just mythology but a deep spirituality wonderful spiritual uh um, system. I studied that. I, I, I've studied it for years, maybe 20 years. And I've written a lot of my books based on that Greek spirituality. So th- this is buffet to me, but it's, it's not light. It's not just sampling uh, a few things here and there lightly. It's really going into it and being affected by it. That's the kind of uh, cafeteria approach that I recommend.
0: So let's go into the why people are derisive of this kind of approach. I mean, you've already addressed it somewhat that people say, oh, that person's just being superficial. But other complaints that I've heard are things like, well, you know, where's the rigor in that approach? And you can kind of take the parts you like and put something together that doesn't really confront you. Whereas if you stick with one tradition and a teacher and a community, oh, you'll really get confronted if you do that.
1: Yes, there's something in the, in the spiritual life. Uh, there are certain uh, deep, deep, I would call them archetypal patterns and dynamics in the spiritual life that keep popping up no matter where you go with it. And one of those is that you really should be disciplined and rigorous and you should suffer. You know, suffering is good, and you should submit yourself to authority. All these really heavy things—I um, would call them sadian. They're like the Marquis de sa would recommend this kind of approach. It's—it's uh, it's very heavy Saturnine, and it's been associated with spiritual movements, and not just Christianity. It's in Judaism and places, and certainly in Islam and places, and all over the place and you get these new movements spiritual movements and you you, know, you find people again submitting too readily to authority and feeling that this is the way to do it so they see someone come along and and he just takes a sample from here and a sample there depending on what he wants what he enjoys yes and you and you say well that's that is not as worthy as suffering and really submitting yourself fully i mean Bend over, you know, really lie on the ground and prostrate yourself and submit to this authority and tradition and so on. I think it's uh, it's the, very deep down, it's a conflict between um, that, uh, what Freud called the death principle and the life principle. It's death to submit yourself. You die to yourself in a way, in a bad sense. You submit to an authority. You take on obligations that make you don't feel very full of life but they kill your spirit and um, the other side of it is that you make some choices that appeal to you that have some pleasure connected to them and you only, you only uh, involve yourself as long as they give you some life and some vitality so it's the life principle versus the death principle as far as I can see it's very very deep in culture and deep in people it's not just a, a, a personal decision it's something deep within us and we live in a culture that is has a lot of that death principle in it. There's not a lot of life stuff in our way of life. We we, we think that people should work hard and not play much. Really, um, that that idea that we should suffer, and that we're better people because we suffer, is has been part of this, of many spiritual movements. I don't want anything. I don't want to have anything to do with that either. I'm interested in a joyous life affirming approach to the spiritual life that allows us to to have our pleasure and to uh, have our own timing if we want if I want to be a Catholic monk for 13 years and then go on to something else why not but I tell you I'm criticized by by large numbers of people uh, for, for the my approach and and even to, to my own way of life uh, they don't like it because I'm not suffering as much as they are
0: Now what about somebody who says, okay, I appreciate what you're saying, Tom, but the problem is I feel a little lost inside. Like if I'm just gonna find my own way, my own personal spirituality, I don't have confidence that I can do that. I mean, the truth is I'm a little lost. That's why I need a recipe. I want a teacher to give me a recipe. I feel more confident in that.
1: Yes, well, I definitely think there's a place for teachers. There's no question about it. When I think about my own life and I think of the teachers I have had, not necessarily formal teachers, but people who have come to the foreground and have helped me by teaching me things, starting with my father. I was fortunate to have a father who was a wonderful teacher that way. Um, I think we all need teachers and we need lessons and we need resources. So I spent a lot of my time trying to uh, encourage people to read some of the classics of the spiritual realm. There's so many wonderful texts to read. And if they can find a good teacher, if I, if I know of a good teacher, I recommend to them. them, to them. But uh, it, again, the teachers can either be uh, uh, people who are alive or people who want everything to be dead. And you have to make a choice. You have to be careful with that. I find that uh, it's true that people also are in a place where they're looking for meaning. They're rather desperate sometimes, and they they um, they hear of somebody who has some uh, exciting thing to say, and it stirs them up, and they, they get swept away. I think a lot of people, from my point of view, a lot of people give their souls to teachers who are not worthy of them. There's too much of that going on. I think it's rampant in America today. There are so many people selling spirituality that haven't done the work. They haven't prepared themselves. I don't think they know what they're talking about. And yet, you know, thousands of people follow. So I think that this is a this problem. We, we need teachers. We need guidance all the time. The tough, the tough thing is for the individual person to be able to have the uh, self-possession to only follow what they consider to be worthy teachers and worthy teachings.
0: That word, the self-possession, and you talk about something that you call having a strong inner compass. What do you think either helps someone develop a strong inner compass, or what blocks having a strong inner compass, if it's already kind of native in us but we can't quite connect to it, however you see it, so that people can develop a spirituality of their own.
1: Mm, Yeah, I know. This is a big thing. I, I feel the question you're asking, I feel it very, very strongly. I know a lot of people in the place where they are so full of goodwill and they really want the best for them, and they just don't know how to choose and what to do, what to do next. And and I'm, I I mean I I work as in therapy with people who are uh, who have made the I think some bad choices of teachers and teachings, and it's very hard to to respond to that. The only way I know is through a form of education. So you, I I make it a point for myself never to uh, put my own my own. Uh, the taste and values in the spiritual realm onto somebody else. I don't want to do that. I don't want to convert other people to my way. It's not, I don't think that's where we are in this world. That's not what we should be doing. But we do need to offer resources for people. So when I go to give talks, one of the things I typically will do is tell people that that I would I recommend to them not to read the latest uh, necessarily the latest spiritual writings, but to start with classics or with people, with writers maybe who know these classics. So I recommend that they might want to read the, uh, the, the Tao Te Ching, which to me is the ba- like a base for developing the spiritual life. And they might go to Sufi poets. A lot of people today love the Sufi poets like Rumi. And uh, the reason I translated the Gospels was I felt that the Gospels, the way they have been translated, were too exclusivist. They were uh, limited to Christianity. And the inherent spirituality in the Gospels was not coming through because of the translation. So I sat down and spent you know, a good length of time. It's a lot. It'll be, it will amount to about 800 pages of work on my part now to translate those Gospels in a way that I think is accurate but can lead people to that particular tradition, the tradition of Jesus and the Gospels, in a way that's intelligent and, uh, and open-minded. So uh, I, all I can say to the question, I guess, is that we keep working in all these different ways to make things available, make resources available to people so that they can make better decisions about where to turn in their spirituality.
0: Tom, you you mentioned how you were studying within a Catholic monastic tradition for 13 years, headed to the priesthood, but then you left. And in your book, A Religion of One's Own, you talk about how that decision to leave was, in your view, actually an important religious act in and of itself, the decision not to go further within the religious framework. So tell me how you experienced that as a quote-unquote religious act.
1: Well, there I was, 25, 26, I think I was 25 at the, when it first started. I had spent 13 years, uh, difficult years. Uh, the monastic life was wonderful and beautiful in many ways, but it was also very cold emotionally. I came from a warm, emotional family, and to be in that cool atmosphere was not easy for me, very authoritarian and um, kind of crazy in some ways, and yet beautiful at the same time. And The mix was okay for me, so I stayed with it for all those years. And there I was six months before I was to be ordained a priest. I just think, I mean, I had my families watching, they're with me, behind me, supporting me, and now happy that I'm finally coming to the end of this whole thing. The big crowning achievement will be to become a Catholic priest. And one morning I woke up and I, I didn't realize before that something deep inside me had changed. I, I understood there were some reasons for it, but the, the essential thing was that I had changed. Something this, Not exactly I, but this thing in me that had brought me into this life was no longer there or it was turning in a different direction and so what i'm saying is that for me to obey to take that that sign seriously that feeling within me that i have to make another move now it was like a almost like an ethical claim or demand on me and so for me to leave the order at that point and to leave that m- movement toward the priesthood was a religious act it was like it was responding positively to something that i knew was part of my calling in life, what I had to do next. And it was a bit vague, maybe, because it was such an internal experience. But I think that's where the spiritual life resides. You pay attention to your inner life. That's the difference between a spiritual person and a purely secular person. The uh, spiritual person takes seriously these things that come from within and uh, sorts them out, doesn't just act on everything, but sorts them out and makes decisions that can be difficult. And that's what I did. So I felt that my decision to leave the, what they called religious life, the, the, the monastic community, and enter the secular world was paradoxically a religious decision on my part.
0: Part of the reason I wanted to hear you describe this is that I think a lot of people feel conflicted In relationship to a spiritual path or tradition that they may be associated with and that they actually feel this inner call to do something different maybe that's you know study with a different teacher or add something in but there's this conflict and they think oh I'll be betraying my religion or the spiritual path I'm on and yet so there's this conflict inside what is the true spiritual act here
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I, exactly. You you, you expressed that perfectly. I think a lot of people feel that. They don't want to betray the tradition that they have spent so many years um, being faithful to. It's a betrayal. But the thing about life is, <laughs> the only way you grow up, and this is the way some people like the Gnostics uh, interpreted the, the, the Eden and being chased out of Eden, is that sometimes you have to commit a crime. You have to You have to betray. You have to. You have to betray what you have honored all this time. So that to make a real turn in life requires a a certain uh, transgression. And uh, that's a great mystery. It's hard to understand that, especially for people who have been taught they should be virtuous their whole lives and and that you should never betray. Um, That's not the way of life. This is now where we come into the shadow aspects of being a spiritual person uh, you have you can't be sweet about it you can't just be nice and virtuous all the time you have to betray sometimes betray people betray betray your tradition and it's it's but it's done thoughtfully it's not like just being a bad person to betray it's knowing that the necessity or that the, the what is required from deep within as in my situation is more difficult and more important and in a sense trumps the faithfulness that you've had to to your spiritual practice you have to make that 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 choice it's a difficult one it's a turning point and i'm not saying it's you can't make mistakes yeah you may make mistakes in it but you it's a slow process in some ways and you can always adjust as you go along so that you 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 develop a certainty that you've done the right thing. I have no doubt whatsoever uh, at this point in my life that I, that was the right thing for me to do. But for the first 10 or 15 years afterwards, I did have a lot of doubts.
0: Which brings me to a theme that I've heard several times in this conversation. It's something about like the courage to take a stand. I mean, you're willing, Tom, to take some very strong stands. I mean... You're not interested in monks getting into, you know, fMRI machines so that the culture right. can co-opt meditation. I mean, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me a little bit about that taking a stand, because I think when it talks about finding your own way to a meaningful life, people are going to have to take some stands to do it, and that's not easy.
1: No, it isn't. I have a model for that. Um, Thomas More of England is some called saint by the catholic saint thomas more many people know him as a man for all seasons and uh... he was a very uh... interesting rich uh, richly educated uh, humanist religious humanist and um, uh... he had to take a very difficult stand when his king henry the eighth asked him to betray his religion and Thomas More thought it through, and a lot of good people around him, including Thomas More's daughter, who was very bright, um, tried to convince him that he didn't have to fight the king in this. Um, and he was being threatened with being, um, what they call it, being drawn and quartered, which is terrible uh, torture. And, and the, the king commuted it to beheading to make it easier for him. And so this story has been part of my life because of my name ever since I was a child. And that works inside me, I think, that I know that this other Thomas More, was so much like me, or I'm like him in so many ways, um, that he, when, when it came to the point where he had to sacrifice his life, he was willing to do it, to take the stand. And he didn't want to, and if you read, I've read his letters from prison, and I, I've, I've, uh, been in his cell where he was sorting out all of these things and he's trying to figure out what to do and he he finally decided he really loved life and he he loved his king really they've been friends since since childhood but he he couldn't be he couldn't betray at this point he had to take a stand and so that story and image is behind me i i feel that there are moments when you don't, have to, you don't have to put your life on the line, or you don't have to put things on, anything on the line for many things. But every once in a while, something comes along, and you really have to speak your peace and, and, uh, and you know lay it all out and suffer the consequences.
0: Okay, Tom, I want to read you another quote from your book, A Religion of One's Own. And here it is. Open hearts are relatively rare in an anxious world and yet are clearly the basis of a spiritual life. So I wanted to talk about that. You know, here well, we are at the basis of a spiritual life.
1: Yeah. Well, I think what I'm getting at there is that it's it's very common to think that spirituality is about belief or about achieving some level of consciousness. I, you know, you never find the word consciousness in my books. I'm not interested in that. Um I think that the spiritual life is about love and the heart. That's what it's all about. That's certainly what the Gospels are about. That's as clear as possibly can be. It's about heart. It's not about belief. And the same is true, I think, when you read in other traditions. Read those Sufi poets and how, how much heart there is in the way they describe their relationship to the divine. It's a matter of heart. Read the the Christian mystics and the Jewish mystics. I think you find everywhere you find the same kind of thing, that you have to open your heart. Now, that's something that we can experience. What is it like? Do you know what it's like when your heart is closed to somebody or to something? When you're not as open as you could be, your heart is closed partially. And maybe you don't even know that, that you're going around with your heart only half, half open. I'm not saying it should be wide open all the time. But having the capacity to open your heart is certainly, I would say, the basis of the spiritual life. So that it is manifested not in saying, this is what I believe, but this is how I live. And uh, how you live is really rooted in the capacity to love people. It's, it's, uh, in the Jesus teaching, it is to love people who are not in your circle. That's what he talks about. He says it's okay, you know, it's easy enough to love someone that you like and you can get along with, but to love people who are not in your circle, not in your, your community, not like you, that is the challenge. That's really the defining difference. And I think that's really about the spiritual life as well. If you are closed and you can't love outside your circle, who cares what you believe? It's all mental. It's all or even the le- achieving levels of consciousness. I don't. To me, I don't get it. I don't see the point in all that. I see people who are doing all this consciousness stuff, and I don't want to hang, hang around with them because <laughs> the heart is not there.
0: Okay, so let's say someone's listening and they say, I'm with you, Tom. I want to open my heart more to people outside of my circle as part of the development of my own personal spirituality. How do I do that?
1: Well, you, it's, as I always say, you, you start with where you are, and you can. If you really want to do that, you you ask yourself, are there people with whom I cannot be open? i not. I don't want to suggest that you should be wide open with everybody. You can't. It's all a matter of degrees. And but but there are probably places where most of us could open our hearts more more. To another nationality, to another type of person, to another to people who live differently. Um, all there's so many different uh, blockages to where our heart is, where it could be open. Like today, it's it's when you talk about um, sexism or uh, um, you know genderism or whatever it is. I mean, uh, there's so much uh, racism and so on. All of that is really not about belief it's about your heart. where is your heart? what's it closed what is what is it afraid of what what is stopping it from opening it up? So people can start with that and look around in their life and say, "Where am I closed? Now when I say this um, to you now uh, to try to make it in practical terms, the only way the way I do it is I, I go around giving workshops and I have people in a group with me for a weekend or a week and we explore these issues i'll ask them well, think about it or maybe talk to you, talk to each other about this for a while what, where are the people where, where do you draw the line where does your heart close off let's start with that and then we can gradually build to seeing where you can open yourself more And when you discover that you've had these blockages that are full of anxiety and maybe biases that have been in the family for a long time, there's a great liberation from that. It's not that you're doing the right thing. It's that you're able to live more and you feel more like a human being and life becomes richer and more enjoyable.
0: I'm curious, Tom, just as we conclude our conversation, when we look at somebody developing a personal spirituality, and you've talked about reading the classics and trusting more our own sense of an inner compass and that that can develop with time and fine. work with teachers who encourage life, you have a quote that a true religion makes real demands on you. And I'm curious, how will this personal spirituality that I'm developing, how will I experience its real demands? I don't have some punitive teacher making real demands. So where are these real demands going to come from?
1: Well, they will come from a lot of places. They'll come from the world itself. So things will happen in your life, and you have, you'll be faced with a test, really, of your values and your or vision that have come from your spiritual practice, and uh, you you will uh, be put on the spot. To, uh, how do you choose now? What are you going to do? That's one place it comes from, and it also comes from the inner voices, like conscience, which is a very important thing. Uh, other voices, too, though not just conscience, but desire, um, a sense of belonging and community. Uh, there, there are many ways, I think, in which internally uh, we can uh, feel um, the, the demand or the challenge to, to walk our talk and to live out what we consider to be our, our, now our own spiritual values and uh, uh, the way we want to be in the world. So it doesn't go away, it's just that it's less externalized less act as less acted out with other people I think if you think about this that as long as the the um, demand on us is external coming from outside it's probably not as mature I, w- I would say it's not as mature as having to respond to your own inner conscience and your your inner sense of what is right or what you are called to do it, it, I th- uh, I can say one more word about that. When I think of ethics and morality, I think not only of what we, of doing, how would I put this, of avoiding the things that we know we shouldn't do, it's not just, uh, you know, avoiding the, the, the thou shalt not, but I think ethics asks us to do certain things, like to be out in the world, to take a chance, to speak for our values, to, um, to do a job, do work. That is uh, more, maybe more public. That uh, where we're going to get criticism, uh, where we go against the tenor of the times, or people around us, or family, our family values, or friends. Uh, that's where we really come into the pinch of what it means to to uh, to follow through on our own spirituality. And and in fact, what what it develops then is a much keener, much subtler more demanding conscience than when you're just responding to externals. It's more demanding. So I think that the person who has his own spirituality probably very well could live a life that is more of a challenge than if you were just submitting to some system that's outside of you.
0: And to end, Tom, is there something that's being demanded of you right now? I'd be curious that you'd be willing to share with us. You've shared several strong stands in this conversation, mm-hmm. but what's kind of the inner imperative for you right now?
1: Well, I'm trying to, to um, I, I, I guess in my, my, uh, my current life, I'm a writer. That's what I do mainly. I write books. And I know that... Um, that there are certain things that are popular that I could decide to try to be more successful at my my writing by following up on some of the popular ideas today, but they're not me. For example, I, I, I hate to say this, but I'm not terribly interested in mindfulness myself. It just doesn't do it for me. Um, there's so many movements today since so we've already talked about living in the moment and concepts like authenticity none of these things appeal to me um but i have my own ideas and that i'm very passionate about so for me the challenge is uh do i try to be more successful and as my publishers are always asking me try to find ways to let you know for people to appreciate more what i'm saying or be clearer to people or do i strongly and uh Kind of boldly myself, do my work and let the chips fall. Uh, one way I think of it is, I, I write for people who might come along 200 years from now. That's, I mean, I'm not sure that my current generation probably gets me that much. So I think, well, maybe the you know, in two or 300 years, someone will come along and, and realize, hey, there's something here. I want to be able to speak honestly and openly, uh, but it's a challenge because every day someone tries to convince me not to not to live this way and not to work this way, and I can appreciate what they're saying. They're just trying to help me. They're trying to make life easier for me, but uh, when it comes down to it, I I really can't do it. I, I, g- I give a little bit to that um, idea of being more popular and understandable. But to me, to be an artist, to write uh, words that are mine, to write ideas that I can really stand for, that's that's more important. But I can tell you it's not easy. Um, every Every day, every single day, there's a challenge in my position.
0: Well, I just want to thank you for your fidelity, for your bold fidelity, Tom. Some
1: people would call it uh, craziness.
0: Well, then I'll thank you for your bold craziness.
1: Thank you. Bold, yeah. Thank you.
0: I've been speaking with Thomas Moore. With Sounds True, he's created a new audio learning series called A Personal Spirituality, Finding Your Own Way to a Meaningful Life. He's also contributed to a new Sounds True book called Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression. And, Tom, I always enjoy talking to you. Your craziness, crazy fidelity, inspires my crazy fidelity. So thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Tammy, for your support, for years and years of support.
0: SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.